Our text is Psalm 118. Psalm 118 with the Old Testament lesson. A few weeks back, we saw the importance of Psalm 110. And there, I mentioned that Psalm 110 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Cited some 15 to 20 times in the New Testament. Well, Psalm 118 is next. Second, with 11 citations. And like Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm which points to Christ, to Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And also like Psalm 110, the citations in the New Testament, they're not incidental. They go to the center of what we believe about Jesus and about his saving action for our sakes. Nevertheless, Psalm 118 presents some challenges. I've actually wanted myself to preach it for years. I would look at it, I would see its importance, and I would say, no, this is too difficult to preach. We don't know much about the original setting. It's hard at various points in the psalm to tell who's speaking. It's a notoriously difficult psalm to outline, to try and follow the exact flow of the thought. And connecting it to Christ, while it obviously has connections, it's not straightforward. So let me give you an example of this. The psalm is read by the church, historically, in the church's lectionary, the church's system of readings that we follow here, where we have three readings a week. This psalm is read on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday. And the portions that are read on those two Sundays are not identical, but they overlap a great deal. So, what I've decided to do is this. We're we're not going to look at the psalm in a linear fashion. We're going to take a thematic approach, and I'll jump around a little bit, so you may need a Bible in front of you, because I'm not going to go in order. We'll make three points, though. In other words, we're going to try and read the psalm three ways, real quickly. The first one is the procession, by which here I mean the psalm, the whole psalm in its original context, what the psalm would have meant in ancient Israel. The second one is Palm Sunday, and there I'll focus on verses 19 through 29, and the third point will be Easter, where the focus is 14 through 24. So the procession, Palm Sunday, and Easter. So first then... Psalm 118, we're we're going to look at the procession. One thing that is agreed upon by virtually all is that this psalm is a processional liturgy. And it's a procession which ends in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the psalmist, who may be a king, he may be a military leader, he was in some sort of situation of great danger or peril, He was facing the threat of death, and the Lord provided him with this marvelous and really unexpected triumph, a kind of surprise victory. And so in verse 5, for example, he says he was hard-pressed. In verse 10, he was surrounded by the nations, swarmed like bees in verses 11 and 12. He finds no help from human princes in verse 8 and 9. He's pushed back and about to fall in verse 13. 
Nevertheless, with the Lord as his helper and refuge, he experiences this great victory three times in the text. In verses 10 and 11 and 12, he says, In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. And he's he's extolling God's action for him in the language of the Exodus. Verse 14, for example, is a direct citation from the song of the sea sung by Moses and Miriam and the children of Israel at the Red Sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Same thing with verses 15 and 16. They echo this song. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. It's Exodus language. Again, verse 28, he echoes the Exodus song. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. So this psalmist, he who was about to die, verse 17 says, shall not die but shall live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And this psalm, Psalm 118, is that proclamation of what God has done in his life. And as I mentioned, it's a processional liturgy. So if you back up, it works something like this. He calls the people, probably those who are processing with him, he calls them to worship the Lord for his goodness and enduring covenant love in verses 1 through 4. Here we might note something. The victory was singular. It was the the victory of the psalmist. But the enjoyment and the celebration of the victory is for all the people. And so it is with our lives. We weep weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. None of us lives unto himself and none of us dies unto himself. The psalmist's victory was singular. The celebration of the victory belongs to all the people. So he calls the people to worship with him in verses 1 through 4. He recounts, as I just briefly touched on... While journeying to the temple, he recounts his ordeal and his triumph in verses 5 through 18. And then he's arrived at the temple precincts. Having arrived there in verses 19 through 21, he asks for the gates of the temple to be opened. That he and those who are with him, the people he calls the righteous, might enter into the gates of the temple and give public thanks to the Lord for his deliverance. And so it's his marvelous reversal and victory that is first alluded to in those famous words, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, he was rejected, but God gave him an unexpected triumph. So they enter the temple courts. The people pray for the Lord's favor. That's in verse 25. And in verse 26... What we have is probably the priests from inside the temple grounds, inside the temple grounds, pronouncing a benediction on the psalmist and those with him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the priests answer the processing multitude. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after which, in verse 27, they proceed up to the altar. They offer their sacrifice with gratitude and joy. I know that's somewhat complicated, but that's the procession. That's how the psalm would have worked in its original context. 
So secondly, then, I want to read the psalm in light of Palm Sunday. This is the second reading. So here we'll start at verse 19. And now it is Jesus who is the leader of the processional. And he's mounted on a donkey. And he's on the way to victory, but first to shame and to the apparent defeat of the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem to the temple. And the crowds, the crowds see it as a time of celebration. You know the story of triumph. And the gates, the gates should be swung wide open for him by the priests and the religious authorities in a joyful welcome so that Jesus and his followers might enter and give thanks to the Lord God. But of course, Jesus knows better. What's about to transpire in Jerusalem in the last week of his life is given in those well-known words, verses 22 and 23, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is now the stone which the builders rejected. The builders are the chief priests and the scribes and the temple authorities. And verse 22 is now a prophecy of his passion, his suffering and his death. And yet this rejected stone will become the cornerstone. That means he'll be the critical building block of the new temple. So this phrase about becoming the cornerstone, that's a prophecy of his resurrection. The rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. It comes without human aid. And this reversal, this ironic reversal from tragedy to triumph, from cross to resurrection, this foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of men, This decisive plot reversal which unravels death itself, it has always been at the center of the church's wonder and joy. That's why the text says, and this is marvelous in our eyes. This is the central marvel of the Christian religion. And Jesus cites this text about the cornerstone and its rejection to the chief priests and the elders of the people in the middle of the last week of his life, the week that began on Palm Sunday. And he cites it to them in that blistering parable of the tenants, which I read as the gospel lesson. And there Israel's leaders are told they're going to be dispossessed, that the kingdom's going to be stripped from them and given to another people. This is why... After the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the temple not to sacrifice, not to celebrate, but with a whip made with his own hands to cleanse the temple which has become defiled. And once raised, he will destroy the temple in 70 AD because he's creating a new temple, the temple which is the church, the body of Christ. Now here I want to note something important. Hopefully you've picked up a little of the importance to the history of redemption of Psalm 118, but there's much more to it. This psalm was used in Jesus' day 
as part of what were known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Those are, I've mentioned these before, I think. These are Psalms 113 through 118. And they were used as a group to commemorate the great work of God from the Exodus. In other words, the ancient Jews understood that this is an Exodus psalm. We've already pointed that out. And Jesus, beginning on Palm Sunday, is going to his Exodus. Luke 9 tells us he's going to Jerusalem to accomplish his Exodus. His great act of deliverance, of which the Exodus was the pattern. And what's interesting here is this. Psalms 113 through 116 were sung before the Passover meal. Psalms 117 and 118 were sung after the Passover meal. The Passover is enacting a new exodus. So this psalm was in all likelihood sung by Jesus and his disciples. After the Passover meal, as he set out to Gethsemane. We are told in Matthew's Gospel that as he set out, that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn. This is that hymn. So, think of it now. A day or two after Jesus cites this text in that blistering parable to the tenants, he sings it. He sings it at the Passover meal on the night he was betrayed. It is the last song that he will sing on earth. Now picture, imagine that night, that meal, that darkness descending, that imminent arrest, that impending torture. And our Lord sits there with his frightened disciples singing, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's astonishing. But we're a little ahead of ourselves because I don't want to get quite to the end of Palm Sunday week yet. Verses 25 and 26 in the text, are cited instinctively and spontaneously by the crowds and later by the children in the temple courts during Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Now think of this. For all their confusion, and I would understand if you're a little confused now. It's a tough psalm to get at. For all their confusion, these first century Jewish people somehow connect Jesus' procession on Palm Sunday with Psalm 118. They cite verses 25 and 26. It's quite remarkable, and in doing so, the people showed a a profound uh, theological instinct. Verse 25 is, Lord save us, and literally translated, that is, Hosanna. These are the Hosannas of Palm Sunday. And verse 26 is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, cited in all four Gospels. Not by the priests and leaders, but by Jesus' ragged band of disciples. Followers, anyway. And the procession to the altar, in verse 27, to offer the sacrifice, to place it on the horns of the altar, is now Jesus' own self-offering. Surrounded on every side by enemies, swarmed like bees as the stone which the builders rejected. 
That's Palm Sunday. Finally, Easter. So here we're going to revisit the psalm, starting in verse 14. Starting in verse 14. Through the sea of death, the Exodus triumph, the, the Lord himself sings the song of Moses and Israel at the sea. Here we can read the psalm as the resurrection Jesus saying, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation and my victory. The whole church joins the song in verses 15 and 16. Celebrating. Celebrating the power of our Lord's right hand at which the risen Christ will be seated. And so verse 17 we have Jesus Christ declaring this, I will not die, but live. He will not be given over to death. Death will not hold him. It can have no dominion over him. He was delivered from dying, unlike the original psalmist, Jesus was delivered from dying by dying. Which is why the ancient church said, dying, he destroys our death. Rising, he restores our life. This is the cry of the whole church because we are the people for whom death has lost its sting. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is Jesus' interpretation of the lines in Psalm 119, 118, which say, I shall not die, but live. And the gates which are opened... The temple gates, which are open in verses 19 through 21, they are now the gates of the heavenly temple. Because the book of Hebrews tells us Christ did not enter a man-made temple or a man-made sanctuary. He entered heaven itself to appear in God's presence for you, to pray for you. And so we enter with him. We give thanks through him. We bless the Lord who in him has become our salvation. And so now, when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's the greeting of the whole angelic host on high at the ascension and enthronement of the risen one. It is no longer the children and the disciples on Palm Sunday. It's the heavenly host receiving Jesus into the heavenly temple saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because he ever lives above for you to intercede. And from there, what does he do? He places his priestly benediction on his people. In the words of verse 27, he makes his light, his resurrection light, shine on us. So now, when we read the psalm this way, and the church has always read it this way, we see beyond the dread and the rejection of that last week, We see that the stone which the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone of a new temple. Now, gathered here on this day, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, the day of resurrection, the day of light, the day on which we process into the heavenly temple after our forerunner, on this day, What the church is doing is perpetually answering the song of our Lord on the night he was betrayed. 
we are saying on this day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because on that dreadful night, he with his disciples sang, this is the day that the Lord has made. You can sit here in the day of resurrection and light and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. And here we anticipate, we taste of, however briefly, the day when we shall again and finally say of the risen one who is the coming one at his appearing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he says that your temple and your city are going to be left desolate to you, at the end of that lamentation, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are not just the words of Palm Sunday. They are not just the words of the heavenly host when Jesus ascends. They are the words of the church waiting for him to appear again. And so the whole text, it is a bit convoluted, I, I grant that. It's not easy. But it's an expectant call to worship. For we are still crying out the words of verse 25, Lord, save us. Right? We still shout Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. We still need to confess verses 6 and 7. You'll notice that verses 6 and 7 are cited in Hebrews 13. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Finally, notice the psalm begins and ends with this summons. I don't want us to lose sight of this. What does all of this mean? It means this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his covenant love endures forever. That unfailing love is what wrought the exodus. And it's what wrought the victory for our psalmist. And it's what wrought Jesus' greater exodus. And it is this unfailing love which surrounds you in Christ Jesus. That's what Psalm 118 means for you. This unfailing love of this Christ surrounds you. And like the psalmist, like our Lord Jesus and in union with him, in every threat, in every crisis, we declare that he has not and he will not give us over to the power of death and destruction. We shall not die, but live. And thus fittingly, this is quite remarkable. John Calvin said of Psalm 118, he said this, We whose life is hid with Christ and God ought to meditate on this psalm all the days of our lives. And when we do that, we begin to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his unfailing love. And when we do that, we continually cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.